Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, New Books Network audience. Today, I am your host, Erica Monahan, and I have the great pleasure to introduce two historians talking about their new co-written book. The book is called Post-Imperial Possibilities, Eurasia, Eurafrica, Afro-Eurasia. It was published in 2023 by Princeton University Press by Jane Burbank and Frederick Cooper. Frederick Cooper is Professor Emeritus of History at New York University. His research has focused on 20th century Africa, empires, colonization and decolonization, and citizenship. Among his books are the 2005 Colonialism in Question, Theory, Knowledge, History, um, he also wrote, which we'll come, we'll talk about this and um, to set up our conversation. He co-wrote with his co-author today, Jane Burbank, Empires in World History, Power and the Politics of Difference, which was also published by Princeton University Press in 2010. He has written Citizenship Between Empire and Nation, Remaking France and French Africa, 1945 to 1960. Africa in the World, Capitalism, Empire, Nation State. He has also written recently Citizenship, Inequality, and Difference, Historical Perspectives, and another book that has been reissued in 2019, Africa Since 1940, The Past of the Present. His co-author, Jane Burbank, is also Professor Emerita at New York University. Her areas of research are Russian political culture, law, and empire. She has been studying Russian empire for a very long time as her bibliography displays. Her first book was Intelligentsia and Revolution, Russian Views of Bolshevism, 1917 to 1922. She followed that up with Russian Peasants Go to Court, Legal Culture in the Countryside, 1905 to 1917. In the wake of the Soviet Union, uh, Jane, uh, Soviet Union's collapse in 1991, Jane Burbank has been among the pioneering historians in really starting to question and re-examine and re-examine questions about Russian Empire. In 1998, with co-editor David, Ran co David Ranzel, she put out a volume, Imperial Russia, New Histories for the Empire. Uh, less than a decade later, co um, collaborating with Mark von Hagen, the late historian, and Anatoly Vimnyov, she published another important edited volume of essays called Russian Empire, Space, People, Power, 1700 to 1930. As I said before, she and Frederick Cooper co-authored the very important book, Empires and World History, Power and the Politics of Difference, which I know I, along with many others, have used to great effect in the classroom. Um, and, and now they have followed it up with this project. So without further ado, I want to come to um, our authors. And in New Books Network tradition, I would like to thank you both for being here and ask you first to tell us a little bit about how you got into history. And whoever likes to go first is welcome to. Well, I can start because I think I got into history a few years before Jane did. Uh, I actually went to university, Stanford, thinking I was going to be a physics major. Uh, but I got interested in Africa and history at around the same uh, time. 
uh, mainly as a consequence of, of uh, the Vietnam War. This was in the 1960s. Uh, and an interest in in, in uh, anti-imperialism and and in, and in people people's mobilization uh, against various forms of colonial uh, rule. Uh, so I started out in 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 a in a line that I've in some ways ended ended uh, up in. Uh, but once I started, I really got hooked on on the history and seeing history not only as possibilities but as constraints. Uh, well, I too uh, ended up in history uh, by a kind of accident, an accident of liberal arts education at Reed College. Uh, I decided to take, um, I was interested in comparative literature, and I decided to take a hard language with a great literature that would be Russian. So I started out as an undergraduate as a major in Russian literature. Um, and several years later, after uh, many 60s style adventures, um, I ended up at the Soviet Studies program at Harvard University, the uh, area studies program uh, at that time. And that allowed me to study history, economics, political science, in addition to literature and language. And in taking my um, a seminar on history, I, I just discovered uh, my way. I just discovered that this was what I really wanted to do. I wanted to work with real people um, who had lived as as opposed to uh, fictional ones. And so after that, I stayed on the straight and narrow path of studying Russian history. Oh, or should you. I say the twisted path? <laughs> twisted path. Probably better put. Yeah, thank you. Okay, my next question is, why did you write this book? This, after all, is something I, I take it of a follow-up to your 2010 volume that I've mentioned, Empires in World History. Um, and so I'd like to I, I'd like to ask you about how, why, maybe when you decided to take on such a big collaborative project again. Well, our publisher, Princeton, wanted us to do a sequel to the Empires book, which would have been a kind of end of, of Empires book. But as we thought about it, uh, we, we realized that uh, this would either be a, a somewhat misleading history in that it would focus on uh, on uh, a set of pathways out of empire into something else, but then there are a lot of pathways that are out of something else into, into something different. So we're either going to write a history that was too narrow or a history that, that was a history of everything, which would be impossible to do. So what we decided to do was to write a, a, a history about, a, about political projects getting out of empire that would uh, that would bring out some of the themes we wanted to think think about in seeing alternative pathways out of of empire but without having obligating ourselves to write a history uh, of of how every kind of every variety of polity in the world actually came to be so it's that kind of reflection that led us to write a book about it about post-imperial projects and i should add that it really started out as an article. This book started out as an article uh, I, and, and even started out as a talk, a couple of uh, talks at, at some universities because both of us had worked on portions of what would become the book earlier. I had written about Eurasianism in my very first book, which <laughs> came from my dissertation. Uh, and Fred had been writing about uh, Eurafrica in his books. And uh, we gave a couple of talks at uh, European institutions on 
Eurasia and Africa. We thought this worked well together. And um, one colleague suggested that uh, where was Asia in this, that we should think about Eurasia. That was all before COVID. And when we sat down during hibernating in, in our New York apartment uh, after retirement, unable to travel as we had hoped, uh, we started writing this article. And the article grew and grew and grew. And then we realized it was a book. Okay. Thank you. The um okay, let's get to let's get into some of the meat of the book. Um, so the book is occupied by three projects. Eurasia, a Eurasianism, Eurafrica, and Afrasia, all of which are to date unrealized. Um and and they emerge, well, at least Eurafrica and Afro-Eurasia emerge in a context of decolonization, um, which is very important. And as an aside, I just want to mention to all the readers out here, I was astounded at the amount of knowledge that goes into this book. I mean, the the bang for one's buck in terms of um, what's in here was, was so eye-opening and educational. And I'm so grateful that you have done this work, kind of the payoff of having two erudite experts putting their heads together on, on these topics. Um, but so please, if you could, and, and you can't do it all in, in the short time we have, but could you lay out for us what these three projects are? Perhaps we'll start with, and the order they come in the book, Eurasia, Eurasianism. Um, well, first we could also say that uh, Eurasia um, is a emerged or emerged to be a vibrant project um, in a context, if not decolonization, rather imperial collapse. So uh, first in the 1920s, after the collapse of the Russian Empire uh, in during World War I and the revolutions, um, the theory of Eurasianism was created and given a name in the 1920s, and I think its most um, uh, prominent spokespeople emerged at that time. So it's a anti, it's a post-imperial project. And it got a new life at the end of the book. Uh, we talk about imperialism redux, I mean, Eurasianism redux. It got a, uh, a comeback again during a period of imperial collapse, this time the collapse of the Soviet Union. So what is it, uh, Eurasianism? I'll try to be brief. Uh, it's a theory uh, created by Russian emigres uh, based on um, um, interest in Russia's East that preceded um, uh, World War I. Uh, and the idea is that Russia should not be oriented toward Europe, as um, its intellectuals had been for the past um, 200 years, at least at that time, but rather that Russia should be thinking of itself, uh, leaders, Russian leaders, Russian intellectuals should think of themselves as bound to the peoples of the Eurasian space, that is the space to the east, Siberia, Central Asia, Turkic, Mongol people, in addition to Slavic ones. Uh, and that the whole orientation toward Europe and to be becoming part of Europe was an enormous mistake. That is the argument. 
The argument is that there is a natural affinity among the peoples of the great Eurasian transcontinental space, affinities based on long histories of contact and politics and culture that made them the natural, natural uh, geophysical and political and cultural unit. So I'll let Fred go ahead with yeah. Afro-Asia. Yeah, thank you for that. We'll come back to that a bit. And now let's move to our um, next project, Afro-Eurasia. You... Afro, well, I'll start with, with, with your Africa. Correct, um, thank you. And uh, its its early version date, dating to the 1920s was really a project for uh, cooperation among Euro European colonial powers to, ex to, to exploit uh, Africa together rather than uh, as, as rivals. Uh, very much in the shadow of inter-empire wars. Uh, but after the Second World, World War, uh, it revolved in a very different way. Uh, this was a time of crisis of legitimacy of, of European uh, overseas rule. Uh, and from the point of view uh, of, uh, of uh, particularly of France, uh, what, what France was hoping to, to do was to... Uh, solve its problem of, of European conflict by having some kind of in European integration, but not give up on the fact that it had a uh, a colonial uh, empire. If France, if European France was to join with Germany, uh, Italy, the Netherlands, et cetera, to form a European uh, community, which eventually did happen, uh, France would be cutting itself in half if it excluded its African, its African territories. From Africans' point of view, the 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 attraction uh, was related, but actually with the opposite implication. Uh, African leaders, French African leaders, wanted to take advantage of the crisis of legitimacy to make to turn Europe's claim on Africa into Africa's claim on Europe. Uh, that is to uh, include itself in any project for European integration and to use that as a, as a uh, a standing point from which to claim access to European resources to make up for all the inequality that had been the result of, of colonial uh, exploitation. Uh, so it was it was really the perceived weakness of, uh, of European powers, and particularly because this was a project that, that affected above all France, uh, particularly the uh, French weakness, to turn it, it, it uh, around into uh, a project in, in which in which African uh, cooperation with each other uh, would lead to being able to reverse uh, the pattern of exploitation. Oh, so the the, the project of your your uh, of your Africa depended on the on two forms of solidarity that that Leopold Sangor uh, liked to talk about: horizontal solidarity, Africans with each other. And vertical solidarity at the relationship of Africa to France, which he would turn into using using horizontal solidarity to turn vertical solidarity into claim making on France. Now, Afro uh, Asia uh, is exactly the reverse of of that. It was to develop horizontal solidarity among states coming out of uh, colonization and and use that solidarity. To, to transform fundamentally the nature of the of global political order. There were actually pre-war versions too, like the League of Imperialism founded in 1927, where all sorts of movements 
uh, in different countries tried to combine together to combat imperialism. But after the World War II, after, particularly after India became independent in 1947 and Indonesia in 1949, it became a movement of states, states that wanted to assert their so sovereignty but cooperate each other against the, uh, the, the still important colonial powers and against the apparent uh, uh, power SSR and the, and the US. In short, to form a third world coalition, but a coalition among states, not among political movements. Now this culminated in the Bandung Conference of 1955. And since then there have been other attempts uh, in, in order to try to revive uh, Afro-Asia in relationship to, uh, to state sovereignty, to define economic sovereignty, to, to claim economic sovereignty as well as political sovereignty. So that's the, the changing forms that both these, these projects had over the decades. Thank you so much. Yeah, I am. Um... I'm a, a New Englander, so a little bit of a, a Yankee, you might say, and I really um, picked up on that, you know, almost irony of how a project that began as something exploitative was transformed into something to serve kind of a vision of um, compensatory justice of being really included in the French imperial project in a way that would benefit it. Um, was, uh, so, so that that was tremendous, and I just the the your your chapter on Afro Eurasia for me one of the things I really appreciated about this book um, is how we see you show so many of these modern problems associated with multiple identities and mobilities that were already quite salient, already quite identified in the 20th century. People are talking about these issues and, and thinking about uh, different ways to, to navigate them. Um, so I, I thought that was really impressive and I encourage people to um, read this. The, read this. Um, I wanna now ask you, so we've laid out these kind of three general projects and I wanna ask you, did Putin's ex escalation of the war with the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, when this work is already underway for you, did this full-scale invasion alter your vision for the volume? And if so, how? Um, the, the answer is uh, no. The vision of the volume was already set and the first draft of the novel was, I mean, of the book was complete. Um, in August 2021, uh, actually, in the, in, and it, that ended, the first version of the book ended with Eurasia Redux, the coming back of Eurasianism as a major theory, inspiring um, the, uh, the imperial comeback of the Russian Federation. And uh, the final chapter ended with Putin's speech in Crimea in July 2021, in which he uses a vocabulary which I identified very much as coming from the neo-Eurasianists, from Gumilyov in particular, and in which he articulated um, a position that could be described as Eurasianist to his uh, Crimean audience, um, to Tatars 
uh, to Ukrainians, uh, to Russians in Crimea, where he said, you're all part of the Russian homeland. You should be feel yourselves part of the Russian homeland. Um, and he really laid out the sort of vision of uh, Crimea incorporated into into uh, into Russia, but with this ideology of um, a multi uh, multi ethnic um, base uh, of peoples who should belong to Russia. So that was how the first draft of the book ended with um, Eurasia making an imperial comeback. Uh, and then um, uh, uh, for those of you in the audience who know Russian historians, my great friend Marina McGilner um, had read this first draft of the book and she advised me to do some more work on the recent Eurasianism. So for the next few months, um, I had been reading a lot about Eurasianism in Russia in the 1990s, 1990s. And I had been reading Alexander uh, Dugan's textbook published in 1997 under the auspices of the Russian military, uh, a book that lays out the position uh, for Russia to become a Eurasian power um, and to expand uh, over the whole Eurasian space, and as he says, eventually the world, um, and also takes a very explicit uh, position on Ukraine, saying that Ukraine must be part of Russia once again. So I had been reading all this Dugan material, and that meant that when uh, Putin declared war in February 2022, um, I heard Eurasianism all over his um, speech that others have struggled so much to understand. And so what changed in the book was that we, of course, rewrote the introduction <laughs> rewrote the introduction to include um, the crisis that had been opened up, the world crisis that had been opened up by, by the war and by this explicit, explicit um, call for a battle against uh, Europe on the part of, and the United States on the part of Russia and a uh, Putin's, um, Putin's as insistence that small states did not have right their right to determine their own sovereign course. Uh, and it included, of course, it changed the end of the book to the extent that we covered um, the first year of the war on Ukraine uh, and the various currents, countercurrents that the war released. But overall, in terms of the argument of the book, it, it did not change. Okay. Um Thank you. Yeah, because I, in the introduction of the book, for example, you so poignantly feature the remarks of the Kenyan ambassador, Martin Kimani, um, on in the wake of Putin's um, angry arguments <laughs> against Ukraine's existence. And that made me think um, that it all, um, that in that moment really ties together nicely. Maybe what does, Kim, what did Kimani have to say to the UN? Well, his argument was that, uh, Africa had decolonized, that it had decolonized into uh, a whole group of separate states, and that they had ever since respected each other's borders. So his, his argument was addressed to Russia's violation of the sovereignty of, of Ukraine in the invasion of, Feb, of, Feb, of, of February 2022. Uh, so uh, 
he, he basically acknowledged have been set artificially by colonization, not in relationship to any pat particular patterns of African culture, but that Africans had learned to live with that. Uh, and that there have been, and he's, he was quite right about this, relatively few uh, conflicts in Africa over borders and relatively few cases of one uh, state being absorbed into another one state seceding uh, from another. Now, up to that point, everything he said was 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 quite accurate and a very a very powerful argument uh, about whatever one's history that sovereignty really matters and should be protected. Uh, what he uh, did not address and, and probably could not have addressed in, in his remarks to the uh, to the Security Council uh, what was that the uh, ma making uh, the the uh, borders of sovereign states sacrosanct, the possibilities of of uh, of acting together in a wider pattern, pan-African or or indeed uh, Afro-Asian, uh, was was more difficult, uh, and and that the the uh, the price of uh, a system based on uh, the the apparently inviolable so sovereignty uh, of each nation state uh, was that mechanisms across uh, these boundaries were were hard to uh, institutionalize. M most important of which uh, was that the inequality between the ex-colonial and the ex-colonized uh, states uh, became a, a matter of concern within each state rather than uh, for a, a global community uh, as a whole. So European powers in freeing, one might say, uh, their states from colonial rule, they also freed themselves from any obligation to the people of those, of those states for uh, economic uh, and social uh, progress. Uh, those states could ask for foreign aid, but they were not in a uh, institutional position uh, to make to make to make claims. So it's a two-sided process. On the one hand, uh, recognition of sovereignty is a very important way for pe for people uh, to uh, protect themselves. Uh, yet the making sovereignty into an into an absolute uh, make makes uh, it more difficult to to address problems that exist on a global scale across all these divisions. Thank you. Yeah, indeed, one of the kind of looming questions, although um, Kimani's marked, remarks do strike so poignantly as a very pragmatic way forward, that there can be a statute, you know, that there should at some level, the way I read it at least, and um, sh should be a statute of limitations on grievance, <laughs> if that isn't too blunt a way of putting it. But, um, uh, but what threads do we kind of, from the past do we take forward and what threads do we leave behind for the sake of uh, peaceably functioning in the world just one of you know many threads that this book will you know leave me thinking about for a while to come um to switch to switch gears i wanted to ask um uh, 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 to switch gears another thing i've been thinking about is um, among historians of the Russian Empire, Russia and the Soviet Union, 
Putin's invasion has forced a real reckoning. And many of us have asked, um, were we too easy on empire? Where did we go wrong? Did we go wrong in writing this history? Um, were we too casual, casual in assimilating Russo-centric assertions of hegemony and spheres of influence, um, et cetera? Uh, even now, for example, as I read um, about Eurasianism, um, kind of born from a critique of imperialist Western culture, I see um, old wine in new bottles that, that imposes a sort of assumed imperialism on the East. And maybe we'll talk more about that. But um, in terms of to come back to this, this question of reckoning with how we have written the history of Russian empire, did we go too easy on empire? Um, you know, I've wondered if perhaps the part of the problem was that in academia, one doesn't find many champions of the nation state, given the history of the 20th century, it's quite understandable. And so in reading this book, uh, we can, on the one hand, it, it offers some hope, um, or recognition, at least, uh, that Many people have been aware of these tensions and contradictories and varieties of ways of organizing. I, I really love the way you talk about solidarities, vertical, horizontal, um, and that. And yet, and yet, on the other hand, um, maybe less hopeful. These projects that have been have been unrealized, and you even write. Quote, they're false starts in a world of national states, exploitative economic structures, and unredeemable histories of racial prejudice, end quote. Um, and so this, one of the questions that I wanted to ask is, who is this book for? Is it for historians? Is it for political scientists? Um, are there policy implications in it? And just maybe one even more word of um, context in terms of where I, I, I am coming from. I um, uh, I had the great opportunity to uh, live in Kenya for a while after um, being an undergraduate and returned in 2022 and um, got to reconnect with some of my old friends there and um, in conversations with better, uh, you know, a better educated um, friend, I, I was um, very aware of hearing him strike quite anti-Western notes that echoed some of the Russian propaganda. And it and now as we're watching Russia's efforts to kind of turn the propaganda tide um, in a global, in the global South, um, the world majority, what Putin is calling it, it seems that the things you're talking about are, are so important. Well, you've I, got a lot in that question. I know. I, <laughs> That's a, several questions. Um, uh, let me start. Uh, a bit with the um, uh, Russian uh, side of things, um, and well, uh, and also with um, the the nation state issue. When we actually, when Fred and I were in graduate school, um, nation state was everywhere. Um, I mean, the whole story of history was supposed to be imperial empires leading to nation states, and the theorists of the nation state. Um, were very dominant, even as we were um, in the 1970s and 1980s, especially uh, during the time of kind of a weakening of the Soviet Union. Um, nationalism and the, the theory of nation and when nation states get formed and uh, so on, this was very much in the wind and very prominent in theory. 
uh, in, in theories, historic historians' theories. So our first book, um, Empires in World History, really tried to take this on to show that um, first there was not a sing one trajectory for state forms in this world. There were many of them. Um, that empires had been the most predominant, most dominant form of uh, political organization throughout world history everywhere, but also that there were many different kinds of empires. That was a major argument of the first book. Empire was not one thing. And nation state, a term that actually appeared in the mid 20th century, was also not one thing, that these were not the only state forms. So that's part of my answer. I'll return briefly to Russia and then Fred, I'm sure, wants to take this up, the many questions you posed. But it seemed somehow that on this issue of empire, Russia got off the hook. Um, I mean, I've been working on Russia, imperial Russia for decades now. We had many uh, historians dedicated to looking at Imperial Russia um, and to the Soviet Union as um, a multinational, multi-ethnic kind of state. And these concerns were not really, um, in most, many cases, normative, or at least not explicitly normative. Um, there were some histories of nations within the Soviet Union, which really had an undercurrent of defense of uh, ethnic groups against Soviet imperialism. But there was also a strong tendency, I believe, and I think I was a part of this, um, starting in um, the late 1980s, to think back on Imperial Russia and simply wonder, how did it work? How did it work without a normative judgment about uh, politics? Uh, and to some extent, that um, query about how did it work extended to the Soviet Union. At the same time, when there was a deep interest in colonialism and empire uh, in the 1980s and 1930s in the rest of the world, the Soviet Union would get a little off the hook. In other words, most books concerning imperial colonialism were about the first and third world, not the second world. And uh, Eurasianism, in some ways, is the perfect example of this, um, the Soviet Union getting off the hook of being an empire. Uh, because Eurasianism, beginning in the 1920s, when Trubetskoy theorized it, was an anti-imperial ideology. It was against European empire. And Trubetskoy's arguments about why Russia should turn to the East depended on his sense that European imperialism was wrecking the world. Trying to catch up with Europe was a big mistake. It was dividing people within countries um, and that Russia had an affinity with the peoples to the East. And his great work, which I hope everyone should read, 1920 work, Europe and Humanity, the title itself gives you an idea of how he was arguing. Humanity was one thing, Europe was imperial and another. And he ends this book with a call for a revolution of people around the world um, uh, against Europeans. He was not pro-Soviet, but uh, 
this notion that whatever came next in Russia was against empire and and uh, anti-imperial stuck very strongly and could be articulated um, by Soviet leaders themselves. And what's different with uh, Eurasianism in the 19, late 1980s and early 1990s is that on the one hand, uh, empire can be seen, empire itself can be seen as a positive concept. That's what Dugan is saying. He's Alexander Dugan is saying, Russians are imperial people. They, we are empire. Empire is the correct form. And he, um, he completely dismisses the idea of the nation state. But at the other hand, on the other hand, Dugan's ideology is anti-Europe, anti-West, and and uh, and appeal and appeals to again a decolonizing rhetoric. Uh, it retains this anti-imperial edge, as and keeps it, and uh, the term empire seems to stick with the Western empires, the colonial em empires, and the United States as an empire. But positively, um, Russia as an imperial formation is defending according to this theory, um, itself against an assertive, aggressive Western uh, world. So we see in, in this, in Eurasianism, we can see how, once again, Russia positions itself as defending the exploited of the earth against the uh, aggressive Western uh, imperialists. Thank you. And and which is exactly kind of the thread I was hearing from my friend in Kenya, which I think is a nice segue into Fred talking, speaking to this. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you brought up so soon Ambassador uh, Kimani's uh, address to the Security Council in, uh, in 2022. Uh, and our, we, it appears on page two of our book. Uh, so we gave it such prominence because it, it points to the fundamental uh, ambiguity of the concept of, of nation state. He was defending sovereignty uh, against an imperialist aggression, and it does come out of an African experience of, of liberation uh, from uh, colonial rule some, some decades uh, earlier. And he sees the relationship of that uh, to uh, what's gone on uh, uh, ever, ever since. Uh, but it also runs into the, uh, the unsaid in his intervention, uh, which is that the, the nation state system has proved inadequate uh, for overcoming the inequality that it, that uh, that history has has uh, has produced. Uh, so that uh, that kind of uh, uh, ambivalence is some is something we do want our readers to uh, to 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 see. Uh, so in a sense, our uh, bo both uh, the uh, Eurasian parts of the book and the and the and the uh, the Euro-African and the Afro-Asian parts of, uh, of the book are all addressing the question of after empire what? All, all these movements were, were uh, extremely critical uh, of, uh, of uh, empire, particularly Western European uh, uh, empire, uh, but they posed the question of, of what, are, what could come uh, next. Uh, and it's important to remember that the uh, the both the movements, uh, both the Afro, Euro-African and the Afro-Asian movements were, were 
alive and, and indeed at their height of strength in the 1950s. Uh, so any kind of uh, narrative of world history that tries to, to assume that the you're going for empire to nation state in some kind of trans-historical process, maybe from the, the Westphalia treaties of 1648 or the French Revolution of 1789, uh, or maybe it's the uh, the invocation of, of self-determination in the peace talks after World War I in 1919, all, all these assumptions of a linear trajectory are, are inadequate. And that, that people were search were search were searching for other ways of organizing a post-imperial future uh, as as late as as the second half of the of the 20th century, uh, and I, that is in a, in a in effect the, the the pathos of this book, the trying to show the the importance of, of these imaginaries and the constraints on what to do with them. The uh, Eurasian one becomes perverted into in, into a call for reconstituting empire. The the other two uh, are uh, are constrained uh, by the remaining power of the uh, of the North American and Western European state econ their economic power their their continued domination of of international institutions uh, which make it very difficult for the 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 alternatives uh, to to come forth and the nations the nation state. Uh, has not proven to to be uh, a a clear stepping stone uh, to uh, a more egalitarian uh, future. So the the question that was that uh, both the 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 your the Afro Asian uh, uh, movement raised the question of, wh of whether by com the combined forces of, of of states acting together could fundamentally change the the. The order, and that was a big attempt in the in the 1970s under the the name of New International Economic Order, uh, which was shot down uh, by uh, the major powers, and never in the first world, and never got the backing of the second world in the in the night in the 1970s. Uh, the Euro African politics uh, was an attempt to, to bring about change by seeing by the, the strategy of, of of maintaining relations to take an unequal relationship, a vertical relationship, to use Sangor's language, uh, and to turn it around to make it work in the opposite direction from from what uh, what it, it it had. And the failure of uh, of that uh, project uh, has let left uh, the African countries that were involved uh, in it in a in a in a position uh, of uh, uh, in, of being unable to uh, overcome the obstacles to their uh, uh, assertion of uh, their, their desires for economic uh, progress. And in some ways, the continued uh, arguments, the, the continued uh, anti-colonialism uh, that, you, that you see among African youth 60 years after the formal end of, of colonization reflects frustration uh, with the form that decolonization has actually taken, with its actual with the limitations uh, that its the its form has taken, that has not enabled it to be that has not enabled uh, Africans to be in the position to make effective the claims they had on the resources they need to improve the lives of most people on the continent. Thank you. I want to um, ask you to maybe 
talk about Leopold Senghor a little bit more. He's an important figure in your discussion of your Africa, um, who a very sympathetic figure, who nonetheless goes on to um, be the president of Senegal and maintain power for a quarter of a century thereabouts, um, creating a, a single party state. And you mentioned, oh, this was something, this was one of Lenin's ideas <laughs> that, that that took root. And and so I, I wanted to ask you, tell us a little bit more about him. Does he remain a sympathetic character for you? And and what might it say about um, the strongman politics of of Africa that you talk about? So um, that, that is kind of not central to your book, it's in, but it's in the background when you talk about the what or is it the organization of African unity kind of cynic, cynic, uh, cynically referred to as a mutual protection society for strongman leaders. And, and I just so I wanted to ask you maybe to talk about Senghor a little bit as shedding light on some of the trends that are there in this history you've told. Well, I think Senghor is a, as a, in a way a tragic figure. Uh, that he became what he warned against. Uh, Senghor uh, understood the risks of confining politics to territorial boundaries. And one of the uh, things he hoped for in having uh, a, a layered approach to sovereignty rather than an absolutist approach to sovereignty uh, was, that, was, was that rights could be guaranteed at a, at a higher level of the polity than that in which politicians were, were, were going after each, each other's throats. Uh, so he he thought that his vision of, of a few, of a Euro-African future was that each territory would, would have uh, executive and a legislature. There would be an African federation, which would be his expression of horizontal solidarity of, of, uh, of Africans. This would also be institutionalized with an executive and a legislature. And the third la la layer would be what used to be the French empire and would become a confederation of equal uh, states, one of which was the African federation. Uh, when this did not come to pass, what, what Sangor was left with was the, the bottom of those three layers only, and that is Senegal as a, as a sovereign uh, national state, uh, and what uh, and Senghor became a prime actor in exactly the kind of politics that he that he feared. There would be a zero sum struggle for power. That the one of the few resources that Senegal would have would be its sovereignty, its ability to control uh, relations between the territory and the outside world, and Senghor leapt he didn't fall into the trap he leapt into it uh mm -hmm. and became and became the, the kind of uh practitioner of zero-sum politics in senegal that he that he had feared uh would happen uh if that was the if that was the only form in which sovereignty could could take uh so uh two years after he became president of an in, of independent uh senegal he not only fired his uh his leading uh, uh, ally in the political struggles up until that that point, Mamadou Dja, uh, but put him in prison, uh, where he stayed for over over a decade, and he he abolished multiple uh, parties and, be and became uh, a single party uh, uh, ruler. He repented of that. He eventually did reinstate multiple partism, and unlike many of his fellow leaders of 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 uh, of Africa, he did he did in nineteen 
uh, 80, take an honorable uh, retirement. But he stayed way too long in in in, in power uh, and repressed the, the uh, and repressed uh, dissent. So the the critiques of 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 him are are fully uh, uh, of what he did in power. I think are, are entirely uh, justified. Uh, what re what remains it is his own understanding that he elaborated before he came to power over over the types of uh, over the different options different political possibilities that that existed and the dangers uh, of the one that he that he ended up uh, with. So I think thinking of thinking about Sangor as political theorist and I think his notions of horizontal and vertical solidarity and the relationship between the two is an insight that is important not only for for his own political movements but for the world in general. We are dealing with a relationship of political of vertical and horizontal solidarities in our politics all the time, and we need to think clearly about their implications. I think Sangor gives us an important lesson in political theory for that. And I think the effort that he tried to make, the, his, his effort at political imagination, uh, is, is something that's extremely important. Uh, but, none, but none of it belittles uh, the, the, the fact that uh, as uh, the leader of a territorially defined uh, state, uh, he uh, engaged in the, in the some in the same practices that many of his fellow uh, leaders uh, did, which which were which were authoritarian. Thank you. The book gives a lot of attention to space and and talks about territory. Um, one question I wanted to ask deals with the Russian Empire, and um, I wanted to ask, in your view, did the Russian Empire fail at the periphery? At the periphery, um, you talk about the revolt in Central Asia in 1916, and at, I think at, on page 68, I noticed you wrote, the empire had indeed collapsed, imploding on itself when Central Asians rebelled against Russian settlers in 1916. And um, yeah, so in terms of space and the collapse of the Russian empire, did the empire fail at the periphery? So right now we're talking about um, the Russian Empire of uh, the Romanovs um, and uh, and its uh, its end in uh, 1917. Um, I think the the uh, it's it would be too strong to say that the empire collapsed because of rebellion at the peripheries, rather that its uh, embeddedness in a world system of empires, uh, which which took, um, which themselves exploded in World War One was the critical factor. Because if we look at the um, uh, ambitions and the organization of people um, in the Russian Empire in the early 20th century, it's not clear that um, peoples at the borders had either the capacity or the wish to bring the whole empire down. After all, it was an empire rebellion even against Russian settlers in uh, Central Asia. It wasn't necessarily a rebellion for an independent state of some type. So um, what I would emphasize in terms of the imperial collapse was the system of empires, rival empires, that failed to order the world and indeed um, broke open uh, with World War I, which then then um, exploded the deals that kept the Russian Empire together. 
um, the and maybe here the one man uh, leadership uh, uh, role comes into play. As we know, Nicholas II made many very bad decisions in the years leading to the war, and probably um, one of the worst one was ones was his war with Japan, which the empire lost, essentially weakening and shaking up the system, and then giving voice to people in uh, the empire for more autonomy, more cultural autonomy, more rights uh, within the empire itself. But in, to my mind, those were the kinds of struggles that most of the people, if they were involved in them at all, most of the people who were non-Russian in the empire were concerned and their leaders, their leaders, if they had uh, political positions, were concerned more um, with uh, autonomy, cultural autonomy, or various political projects, socialism, uh, than with actually the defeat of the empire per se. Um, drafting Muslim soldiers was a big uh, step in bringing about the weakness of the Russian empire. The persecution of Ukrainians from and Ukrainian language for the last 50 years before the war was also part of the configuration of uh, power that allowed um, the um, the uh, le political leaders to attack uh, the Romanovs in 1917. But we have to remember that the most probably the most important event of uh, bringing down the Russian Empire was the February Revolution 1917, when fundamentally the political elite deserted the Romanovs. But they deserted them for many with many different goals, and not necessarily uh, that of a reconfiguration of independent states. That, on the other hand, was exactly what happened in 1991. That once again, when the uh, empire was failing to fulfill the desires of its leaders, its um, imperial the elites elites from many different um, parts of the Soviet Union, when we see tremendous discontent on the part of people in Soviet elites with their position in the world, their level of live, their standard of living, uh, and so on, that in the 19, 1990, 1991, when the empire came back, we, uh, we do see then elites well-positioned in the 14 other republics of, uh, of the Soviet Union then had an ideology, a uh, nation-state ideology, which they could mobilize uh, to take the empire apart. Thank you. Yeah, indeed, such a such a complex, um, such a both times in 1917 and 1991, such a complex phenomenon. The um, so I want to next ask you about. Um, well, let's see. So in you you talk about in your book how the um, wealth inequality in the world today is as stark as it was in the early 20th century um, on the verge of the Russian Revolution, which you were just talking about. And a, a common thread that that I see in the movements of um, Eurafrica and Afro-Asia is this explicit attention to and concern for um, hierarchical relations, transmission, relations between high and low, and 
for the Eurasianists too, with respect to culture, um, let me not exclude it, although I kind of read Eurasianism as a different phenomenon than these other two projects, le a less sympathetic one, to be frank. Um, but at any at any rate, um, so the so we you're really attentive to these relations between high and low, the rich and poor, enfranchised and disenfranchised, donor and receiver, um, uh, and and yet then you'd kind of ha have this story more or less where if these movements from the colonized might be gaining some traction, the they're pretty much with the with the tenure of Reagan and Margaret Thatcher comes in on the global scene, a kind of neoliberalism that kills whatever traction these movements may have had potential to be gaining. Maybe I'm putting it too bluntly. Um, so I wanted to maybe ask you, is that is that a fair assessment? Um, could you say a little bit more about that? And also I wanna ask the question, even as you write, these are unrealized projects. Um, are there kernels of success that you can identify in them? Well, the kernel of, su of success, to take up your last part of the question, uh, is actually the European Union, uh, which, which is a model of layered sovereignty. Uh, it is not a model of, of how to, to deal with the fundamental inequalities between Europe and the rest of the world. But within Europe, for, uh, for countries that are actually unequal in terms of their uh, economic stature, the, the the difference between uh, between Portugal and Germany is a considerable one, uh, but it is a, it is a structure that recognizes the sovereignty of of the component states, but has supranational st structures, uh, and an idea of Europe that is supposed to uh, transcend that. Now that's problematic in 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 more ways than uh, than than one, not least of which is the idea that. Uh, the you should build a wall around the around the whole thing and keep everybody else out, which which many people within the the union seem to be uh, promoting. But nonetheless, there is a possibility that we can that of taking a less than absolutist view of sovereignty and see that functions can be divided uh, at different levels and then institutions, including including courts, can be developed at a at a uh, at the level of a, of a union. Uh, rather than within individual national states. Uh, now, this model has has uh, has uh, attracted interest uh, elsewhere. Not not least in the uh, the idea of a Eurasian uh, Union that that uh, appeared within the ex-Soviet uh, bloc. Uh, and, but significantly, when the Organization of African Unity changed its name to African Union. It was opening the possibility that something like this could could happen. Now it hasn't, and in some ways there are steps that have been taken in, in the opposite direction. For example, there was a uh, a organization, a cooperative organization of West African states, uh, known by its its abbreviation of, of ECOWAS, uh, from which three states just uh, seceded: uh, Mali, Niger, and and uh, and Burkina Faso. Uh, and so that that I think is a blow to the possibility of developing, if not on a pan-African scale, at least on a on a on a on a regional scale, some kind of supranational organization with some institutional force to it. So in the in that in that sense, there are possibilities that remain. So too, despite Reagan and Thatcher's ability 
to, to stop uh, the movement towards a new international economic order in 1981. Uh, and by no, and Reagan and Thatcher were by no means alone in, do, in, in doing doing that. Certainly corporate interests were very strong in opposing the NIEO. Uh, but it, it, uh, it's not the last we've heard of such demands. At the 2022 climate conference, there was a uh, attempt to, orga to organize uh, a on the part on the part of the poorer states uh, claims on the richer ones uh, that they should pay reparations for the harm that that it was they after all who produced most of the pollutants that are causing glo global uh, warming uh, and that they and that poorer states needed help to overcome the the damages to to their uh, environments uh, that. Uh, Argument received nominal uh, support from other parts, from the richer parts of the world, but it remains to be seen whether there'll be any actual substance uh, to it. So the arg the arguments that came out of uh, of Afro Asian movements, for for example, including the the movement for the uh, new international economic order of the 1970s, those arguments have not gone away, nor has the institutional possibility. That the that the European Union represents uh, this disappeared. It's a troubled body, but to be to be sure. Uh, but in some ways, it's shown more strength uh, in the recent crisis than than it had had before. Uh, so uh, it it's it's not as if the possibilities that we talk about are, are extinguished from the realm of 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 political imagination or around the world. The pro the problem is 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 above all a structural one. Uh, and that the uh, the division of the of the world into nearly two hundred uh, states uh, has been very much to the to the advantage of of global capitalism, uh, and that it, that attempts to uh, to uh, control uh, to limit uh, the the powers of multinational corporations and international financial institutions. Uh, these remain in, in in place, and it's and it's. These remain possibilities, uh, and the the uh, extinction of the communist option should actually give give rise to uh, to more imaginative forms uh, of how to how to deal with a world that the, with a world that uh, provides measures of economic and political uh, liberty uh, with with without leading to the extremes uh, of inequality that the present structures. Uh, provide. Thank you, Jane. Would you like to add anything? Anything to that? We are. I. I see that we are coming to the end of our time, so I'm going to need to let you go. Um, before I do, I, and and I will come back to you, Jane. I want to um, thank you for this example of the EU. I mean, um, as a institution of layered sovereignty, troubled it may be, though I was given great hope. I'm sitting here in Germany, where last month. Thousands and thousands, if not millions, if not a million Germans went out in the street to demonstrate against this um, what's seen as a rise in far right politics with the AFD. Um, and I found that a very hopeful mo moment of, you know, very normal people um, showing that they were committed to a different path and not a path of far right politics at all. Um, and also along this, you bring up this whole other um, theme. It's in your book a lot. Uh, it's it's 
plays a role in your book of global corporations and what role they've played in this. And so I want to give a shout out to listeners that um, to listen to an interview um, that I did on the History Ex Silo podcast with Philip Stern and, and Quinn Slobodian about their books, Crack Up Capitalism and Empire Inc., giving a real kind of long durée perspective on some of the issues that um, you know, manifest and are at play in uh, in post-imperial possibilities. Um, before I go, I would like to ask you, um, I would like to thank you so much for your time and ask you our traditional NBN finishing question, which is, what are you working on next, um, either individually or together? Um, well, let me start. Uh, you did ask me if I wanted to add <laughs> to on the last question. Um, and uh, one thing I'd like to uh, mention is um, one of the themes of our book is a political imagination. And uh, we're talking about the political imagination of people who created these uh, three projects. But also political imagination is a kind of a sticky thing. And um, I think we see uh, the long durée of uh, empire and colonial imaginaries in current politics today. So the romanticization uh, by Africans, some Africans recently, of Russia coming in and replacing France as, as a power to help them out is an example of um, an imaginary uh, about great powers that can help smaller countries. Um, it can be a very deceptive uh, imaginary. And uh, in that line, my the point I'd like to uh, bring out here is in the latest versions of Russian Empire, Eurasianist versions, uh, they are calls an appealing slogan for many people, many elites in politics has been a multipolar versus a unipolar world. But let's focus on that word, multipolar, unipolar. It assumes that there are poles. It's not a, a slogan that means that small sovereign states have rights. It's a slogan that says there will be poles. Russia is a pole. Washington, D.C. is a pole, etc. So I think we need to be very careful of falling for a kind of romantic, romantic interpretation of this multipolar view. It is one that once again says great powers decide all for others. So next project. Now, my next, well, my next project, I'm going back to the project I've been working on for over 10 years. Um, it's uh, located in late Imperial Russia and in uh, the Kazan province. And it's about law and bureaucrats and policemen um, and how it is that Russian sovereignty sovereignty of the state is carried out by the intermediaries of the legal and law enforcement system. So in my career, I figure I've written one book primarily on intellectuals, my first one, the next one primarily about peasants. And this one is going to be primarily about bureaucrats. Um, and I hope I've got enough information to, to finish this book um, from my study um, outside Russia, unfortunately. Oh, well, 
I do too. And I look very much look forward to reading it. I think it's a terrific approach, as, especially as people talk about maybe an al a post-Putin alternative being the technocratic state. So we, we do well to focus on those um, bureaucratic actors. Fred, how about you? Well, I don't have an archival uh, monographic type project that I that I wanted to 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 do. Uh, I think now that uh, that I'm years in, in into retirement, uh, uh, I'm I'm content to uh, pursue a mode of yeah, you might call reflective and and uh, to to think more about some issues that I've written about. And people ask me to revisit revisit some of the themes that I've. Uh, Worked on in the past, so I was just just asked to uh, to go back to some of my earlier work on on labor history and and uh, and uh, and write about in in uh, in a way that 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 might interest some uh, trade unionists who, who are thinking of uh, precedents outside of the European field for for how to talk about uh, issues in in labor history and similarly on uh, on uh, some of my past work. Uh, Particularly, my book *Colonialism and Question* that was published in two thousand and five. Uh, uh, two different uh, project, pe two different people have asked me to reflect back on 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 that uh, uh, from a more recent vantage point. So I, I think I'll do a, a number of uh, of exercises like 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 that, uh, and uh, and try to maintain a a reflective view uh, on some of the major issues and. In historical and political uh, scholarship that have, that have interested me over the years. Well, thank you so much. Um, judging from your all of your works and so far, the contributions that you both have made individually and collectively have been tremendous. I encourage all of our readers to, um, if you've appreciated today's conversation, pick up a copy of Post-Imperial Possibilities. There is much, much to learn in here that we didn't um, even get to. And um, Jane and Fred, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having us, giving us this opportunity. Bye-bye.